Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's telling us there's going to be a financial accident or recession. When you get in, you can get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is really profitable. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Today's topic is Timberland and impact investing. And we're joined today by Eric Cooperstrom, Managing Director of Impact Investing and Natural Climate Solutions at Manulife Investment Management. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. You are in charge of Timberland and Ag Solutions there, and I want to get neck deep into all of that because you've got a lot of education to do. I don't know anything about, well, I'm from Missouri. I know a little bit about agriculture, but only enough to be dangerous. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot today. But before we get going too far, can you tell us where you grew up, your hometown? Can you tell us your first job, not the fancy one, and what makes insurance asset management so cool? So, yeah, Eric Cooperstrom, I lead Impact Investing and Natural Climate Solutions, uh, Manulife Investment Management in our timber and ag business. I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a town called Mount Laurel, New Jersey. So I'm a South Jersey native, big Philly sports fan. I had some bumpiness over the last couple of weeks, but I won't digress too much. And my first job was either, I'm trying to remember accurately, either a paper boy for about a day and <laughs> the early wake up didn't suit me so much, even though my kids have solved that for me and guarantee early wake-ups these days. Or the other one was working in kind of the periodical room of my local library. Oh, wow. And mostly doing my homework, but passing out periodicals when they were requested back when people did that, which maybe shows my age. Um, And then back to uh, your third question, you know, what's so exciting about plugging into the broader insurance asset management industry. I think one is just the opportunity to deploy capital in unique and innovative ways, especially in very well-established asset classes like timber and agriculture, which I think actually makes Manulife unique in having that in-house timber and ag business. Um, that the overall kind of risk-return mindset, you know, obviously risk returns core to managing insurance assets and and client coverage, and you know, I think that kind of bubbles down throughout the organization and, you know, it helps better inform the decisions that we make. That's terrific. And I love the topic and I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning from you. So you have led the development of Manulife's forest climate strategy. Can you tell me about your background and the strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So from my humble beginnings in South Jersey, uh, went into investment banking and then private equity in a traditional finance sense in in New York and then London, and decided to go back at a graduate degree in international development and emerging markets, and really tried to pivot my career toward impact investing and kind of a global purview. And, you know, started that off in the impact investing space in an advisory context in London, and then moved back with my family to San Francisco, where I'm currently based, uh, about 10 years ago, and 
held a number of roles in the foundation space and most recently before joining Mangalife with the Nature Conservancy, large conservation NGO and their impact investing our nature vest and had a through line of timber and ag amongst other impact sectors. So two and a half years ago, when the opportunity came up to join the largest timber investment manager in the world, second largest farmland investment manager in the world, really jumped at the opportunity to join Manulife Investment Management and have been leading their natural climate solutions and impact investing work ever since. Sounds like your educational strategy paid off brilliantly. Well done. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it was very premeditated, but I don't know how, uh, yeah. how coherent it was the whole time. <laughs> I mean, you're the like, you know, I hear people all the time go, I had no idea I'd ever be managing insurance money, right? And you're like, well, I, you know, I intentionally pivoted toward impact investing and here you are, which is a, that's a great story. So carbon markets have received a lot of attention lately. Can you talk a little bit about the growth path of carbon markets and of forest carbon in particular? So carbon markets have been around for for several decades, and I think they're really coming into the limelight over the past few years. And when we talk about carbon markets, it's a little different than other more commoditized markets. You know, there isn't a single carbon market out there. There are actually two major types of carbon markets. You know, one is a, a compliant or regulated carbon market, and the other is a voluntary carbon market. And when it comes to compliance or those regulated markets, these are most often kind of cap and trade systems that you may have heard about at the state, regional, or multinational level. And you have government regulators that establish the rules of the game. And typically, they put a cap on emissions for certain sectors, typically the most heavily emitting sectors like oil and gas and energy. And then they decrease that cap over time. And they issue allowances or permits that allow those regulated companies to emit one ton of carbon dioxide or the equivalent. And they usually have to purchase those permits or those allowances. And in certain compliance markets, those companies can also purchase carbon offsets. So permits that are generated from a third party project that's through an approved methodology. And so these compliance markets or the regulated markets, they make up the vast majority of carbon markets globally. The most recent estimate that I've seen is, is that they're approximately $800 billion in aggregate across various jurisdictions. That's as of 2023. Started off really in 2005 with the launch of the European Union's emissions trading scheme. So, you know, before that, basically zero in compliance markets. And we've seen pretty steady growth year on year, 5% growth last year to that $800 billion mark. I mentioned that not all compliance markets allow for offsets and not all of them allow for forest carbon offsets to be used. So for instance, the European Union, which I just mentioned, the largest and the oldest compliance market in the world, uh, they do not currently allow for forest carbon offsets to be used. So other compliance markets like the California Air Resource Board, the Australia and New Zealand emissions trading schemes, those do allow for forest carbon offsets. And forest carbon is made up over $2 billion of compliance activity in the, the 2017 to 2019 range, which is where the most recent value from a, a group called Ecosystem Marketplace is available. 
And in California, for instance, carbon offsets from forestry projects actually make up over 70% of the volume since that market started issuing offsets or receiving offsets in 2013. What about voluntary carbon markets? What can you tell me about those? The voluntary markets, just as the name implies, are voluntary arrangements between suppliers of carbon offsets and purchasers of carbon offsets. And it's very much an over-the-counter market, and it's not commoditized. Overall, it's driven primarily by four major voluntary carbon market registries. Those are all nonprofit organizations based in the U.S. or Switzerland. And those registries, just as in the regulated or compliance markets, the government agency sets the rules of the game. So they have specific methodologies and underlying equations and approaches that they mandate be used to register and issue credits into those markets. Voluntary markets really came up after the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, and that registry system evolved over time. Volumes started off very low in that time frame, really over the last couple decades. And it's really in the last few years that interest and demand and activity in the voluntary market has increased significantly. So again, quoting ecosystem marketplace, the market reached about $2 billion on the voluntary side in 2021. That represented uh, a little over four times expansion from 2020 levels. And we continue to see this, this rapid evolution and expansion in the voluntary space, especially driven by the increase in net zero commitments in the private sector. And then last thing I'll say is uh, from a forest carbon perspective in the voluntary markets, you know, the historical credit issuance and volume really has been driven first by renewable energy projects, but secondly, from forest carbon projects, especially tropical forest protection, which is known as Red Plus. Um, there's also a number of other methodologies that are gaining in importance, like improved forest management and afforestation, reforestation. And I can go into more detail uh, on all of those as well. Thanks so much, Eric. That's really helpful. Can you talk a little bit about how carbon factors into timber management strategies? And I guess from two perspectives, what are the different opportunities to invest in forest carbon and what are the risk return profiles associated with each one? So, you know, we look at carbon and timber value really as a spectrum of optionality. And, you know, starting on the timber side, timberland investment's already a study in optionality. So, you know, together with our clients' needs and strategies and market conditions, we as timber managers decide when and how much we should harvest in any given year. You can expand that then to the carbon side you know, starting with the fact that all forests naturally sequester carbon, you know, through photosynthesis, natural process, every tree is pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, combining it with sunlight and minerals and nutrients from the soil and emitting oxygen. It's a natural process. We can decide based on harvest quantities and planting how much we want to focus on carbon goals and carbon value as opposed to timber goals and timber value. So for instance, we can target carbon neutrality 
where we're harvesting in balance with the amount of sequestration that happens in any given year. Or we can focus more on the, the far end of the spectrum for carbon value, where we're sequestering more carbon, we're increasing carbon stocks, and we have the potential to access the voluntary or the compliance carbon markets and actually monetize some of that carbon value in lieu of, of timber value in most cases. And then your second question, you know, what do risk return profiles look like? You know, there's a great deal of overlap, certainly with traditional sustainable timber investment. And a lot of that is rooted in the fact that these are natural assets, right? They face unique risks when it comes to comparing them with other asset classes, things like wind events, storm events, fire, pest disease. We have well-established methodologies for addressing those risks through portfolio diversification, strong due diligence, and then active management on the ground. Um, certainly on the timber side, there's commodity risk, market risk, harvest risk. And on the carbon side, you have unique risks relating to carbon markets, price volatility, volumes, and the evolving regulations and standards there. And you know, just from a manual life investment management point of view, we have integrated teams, we have dedicated economic research folks, legal teams, et cetera. You know, we're following all of the necessary market legal and natural capital risks, and we have well-established processes to help mitigate those. So how is Manulife, the Manulife team, positioned to pursue forest carbon projects through its Timberland investment program? So we first have a core focus on sustainability. We've had that for a nearly 40-year history, and we have experience with carbon in particular across a wide range of our teams and especially with our integrated property management team. And it all kind of starts with greenhouse gas emissions accounting. And there is an accounting framework out there called the GHG protocol. We've been following that to report on our GHG emissions and removals for over 10 years. And on that basis of really just being able to count carbon tons, we then expand to other work specifically in the compliance and the voluntary carbon markets where we can actually develop fungible credits through these registries and drive incremental value for our clients. So we have experience working in the compliance and the voluntary markets. We have a number of projects in improved forest management and afforestation reforestation that we manage on behalf of our clients. And two years ago, we invested on behalf of our general account at Manulife in about 90,000 acres of timberland in the state of Maine. And that was really our first carbon-focused investment. And we're setting up that carbon project right now with the American Carbon Registry, which is one of the big four voluntary market registries through an improved forest management project. And we expect our first issuance of credits next year. And so it's really on, on this basis of experience in carbon markets that we established the forest climate strategy. That's really helpful. So with regard to the forest climate strategy, can you tell me a little bit about a little bit more of the details of that strategy? You know, I mentioned that we have experience in the carbon markets, managing carbon projects for our clients. That's really been on an opportunistic basis where 
those projects have been nested within a traditional sustainable timber strategy. And what we're doing now with the forest climate strategy is one, we're looking to provide investors and corporates with a scaled solution that can help support their climate goals and has a focus on high quality and high integrity carbon credit generation. We're also flipping that concentration on its head. So we're now leading with carbon value as opposed to traditional timber value. So the strategy itself has four major components. The main focus, again, being carbon, where we are looking to deploy capital in a globally diversified portfolio of forest projects, primarily looking at existing working forests where we can apply an improved forest management regime, but also opportunistically at greenfield investments for afforestation, reforestation. And we're looking to generate high quality carbon credits through the established carbon markets in either the compliance or the voluntary markets. We're also looking to provide investors with the option in terms of how they receive the carbon value. So they can either receive the in-kind credit and then retire that credit against their climate goals, or we can sell and monetize the credit into the relevant carbon markets. There are three other strategy components as well. So we'll be looking at protection through conservation easement sales for high biodiversity and high conservation value areas. Uh, we'll be looking to apply what we call value-added services. So additional activities like mitigation banking, renewable energy siting, recreation leases that can drive incremental income opportunities for our clients, as well as additional social or ecological benefits. And we'll have a minority component that is focused on traditional sustainable timber management, all with the intention to provide a diversified income stream with that core focus on carbon sequestration and high quality carbon crediting. It's really interesting to me. I remember, and I'm going to date myself in a big way here, but there was a guy named Rick Dahl who was the CIO at Mosier's, the Missouri State Employees Retirement System. He's a friend. He's now retired. It's interesting that when he did timber in the day, carbon wasn't part of that strategy at all, right? Talk me through the graph of how carbon has come into the timber strategy. I think that there's a lot of asset classes that we discuss on this podcast that like I've got an antiquated view of. I think it would be really helpful just to kind of talk about the carbon side of it and when did that become such a pronounced part of the of any of these strategies? Yes, I mean timber investment has been an established asset class for for many decades, it's been a part of institutional investors' portfolios. And historically, you're right, the focus was 100% on timber value and occasionally some of those additional value-added strategies that I mentioned. Carbon markets similarly have been around for quite some time and forest carbon in particular has been around for 25 plus years. But Forest carbon and carbon markets have been at a very nascent state for most of that time. You know, low trading, low volumes, low prices, kind of a, you know, an extended market that no one really paid all that much attention to. And it's really been in the past few years, especially coming on the heels of the Paris Agreement several years ago, that the world really started focusing on climate. And they started focusing on how do we, in the first instance, reduce and abate our emissions, 
And I think in the second instance, how do we have this bridge that carbon markets can provide toward achieving those net zero goals? So as we've seen more private companies, including asset managers and operating companies make these net zero commitments, I've seen a lot more interest in nature-based solutions in particular that can offer a range of other benefits beyond just carbon sequestration. And carbon projects in the timberland space have, have been around to you know a lesser extent over many years. I think over the past, say, three to four years, they've really come into the vanguard and there's a lot more attention, a lot more action in that area. That's really helpful, Eric, and thank you. How does Manulife think about carbon credit quality and integrity? It's a great question, and I'd say one that's very relevant right now and, and really through the development of Carbon Markets, Stuart. So we look at credit quality and integrity as core to all of our carbon activities. And you know, it's not only driven by the fact that over the past few years, there's been increased scrutiny of carbon markets, participants, and methodologies, really focusing on is the carbon sequestration that is being represented real? And that's got to be the core question, right? We have to start with conservative assumptions, and we have to underpin our decisions and our projects with actual, you know, realistic inputs. And so, you know, there are a number of third-party groups like the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market that are setting the minimum standards for the various carbon market actors. In March of 2022, we put out our own Manulife Investment Management carbon principles that are aligned with those ICVCM standards. We want to get out in front and really put a stake in the ground and define what quality means for us. So we have a number of guidelines that get to very specific detail in terms of how we set baselines, how we determine additionality, how we compute leakage, and all of the other kind of core tenets of a well-functioning high-integrity carbon project. We bake that into all of our carbon activities, and we want to come out with very defensible, very realistic assumptions and projects that are, are based in fact and really build on our nearly 40 years of practice and experience managing forests in various regions around the world. That's really helpful. It occurs to me, Eric, that no one ought to have more, has more skin in the game than the insurance industry does with regard to climate change, right? I mean, climate change is usually ends up in the claims office phone ringing. And it seems to me that insurance companies can use their assets to reduce, directly reduce their liabilities, right? If not immediately over time. So in addition to that, like kind of, if you would kind of hop on the, that idea and explain a little bit about why insurance companies should be taking a look at forest carbon investment opportunities. Forest carbon in the first instance shares a lot of the same attributes as sustainable timber investments. So number one, these investments can be portfolio diversifiers. So the asset class, you know, timberland overall is historically uh, shown moderate volatility and returns compared to other asset classes. It has relatively low correlation with other asset classes, and it can be a potential inflation hedge, which you know, certainly 
in the current market situation is ever more important. And then forest carbon brings that additional layer where investors, insurance companies can focus on natural climate solutions to support the company's climate goals through the generation of high quality carbon sequestration and credits. And there's the potential to have these investments serve as a climate hedge. So, you know, as climate change progresses and as climate change mitigation and adaptation actions and regulation progress, there is potential for some more heavily emitting industries to be negatively affected, to have their valuations pulled down. Quite the opposite is potentially true for forest carbon and other high quality nature-based solutions. So you have that portfolio optimization dynamic that these investments can help contribute to. That's really interesting. I mean, that seems like a pretty pronounced tailwind, right? I mean, it just, it, it makes sense to me. I really appreciate you being on. I have learned so much about carbon and timber and these various strategies. And I thank you for that. And I know our audience does as well. I've got one fun question with a little optionality in it on the way out the door. You can take either one of these questions or you can take both. Lots of people take both. No pressure. The first one is, what's the best piece of advice you've gotten or given? And the second one is, who would you most like to have lunch with, alive or dead? Great questions. I'll, I'll jump at both. I love that. Yeah, I think the best piece of advice I received was actually from my TA in my first class in college. And he really pushed me to share my experience, share my humanity, rather than just focus on kind of outcomes and getting the job done. And I think that's pretty critical, right? Like we all show up to our jobs. We all interact with other people, you know, during the day and bringing yourself and sharing who you are makes it interesting, right? It makes makes you human. So I think that was one of the best pieces of advice that I ever received. And then who would I most like to have lunch with? There's an endless list. I'll answer the same way I got my, my first real job out, out of college and say Elvis Presley. Oh, you know, wow. The, the way that he changed American and global music and brought together different genres. And I saw the biopic. I'm sure a lot of other people saw the biopic also. It's just an interesting career arc and, and just fascinating roots from very humble beginnings. So, yeah. I think Elvis. That's so cool. That's such a great, what a great answer. I just, that's a new one for us. That's great. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for being on. We've been joined today by Eric Cooperstrom, Managing Director of Impact Investing and Natural Climate Solutions at Manulife Investment Management. Eric, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like us, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers at the time of the recording and are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor shall it be interpreted or construed as, a recommendation or 
providing advice, impartial or otherwise, regarding any specific product or security.